Wow, lots of emotions. That was great. Can we just give them a round of applause? <laughs> I'm in awe. I'm in awe. That was amazing, and we're moving on to talk about more amazing things. We read last week in Acts about amazing things that were happening, and this carried on. In today's reading from Acts 11, we hear the believers back at HQ, if you like, in Jerusalem, <laughs> questioning the nature of Peter's interactions with Gentiles who were not Jews, like them. So Peter explains here why he did what he did. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, I replied, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again. Do not call something unclean that God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Just then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers accompanied me and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 215 years ago this week, one of the most significant ventures in the history of the United States was launched. It was the brainchild of President Thomas Jefferson, who had recently closed on a massive real estate transaction. It was the Louisiana Purchase. And for what might be paid for a large beach home today in South Walton, the U.S. acquired most everything from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains. Now, you are supposed to complete your due diligence before closing on a real estate transaction. Is that right, realtors? Yeah, Jefferson did it backwards. He bought all this acreage from Napoleon and then commissioned an expedition to explore it. And who were those guys that led that expedition? Thank you very much. Captain Meriwether Lewis and his friend Lieutenant William Clark were charged with investigating this new territory to make as many biological and wildlife discoveries as possible, to establish trade with the native tribes. But most of all, they were to find a reasonable, hopefully by water, route to the Pacific. So it was on May 14th, 1804, a group of three dozen men led by Lewis and Clark, 
The Corps of Discovery, as they would be called, set off from St. Louis, Missouri, up the Missouri River, headed for only God knew what. Terra Nova, new ground, a new world, an unexplored, undiscovered country. Now, you can read at length about the expedition as Lewis and Clark both kept meticulous diaries. The facts are all there in the history books. And Ken Burns, as is his custom, has produced a superb film about the journey. So I won't wander into the weeds about all of that. But I do want to focus on one thing, one decision of many that they had to make that made the completion of their expedition possible. It was August 1805. They had been on the Missouri River for almost a year and a half. They were exhausted, they were hungry, and they were out of water. Not drinking water. They had followed the longest river in North America to its end. 2,341 nautical miles. They were standing on what is now the Montana-Idaho border looking up at the Bitterroot Range of the Great Smoky Mountains, hanging there 10,000 feet in the sky, and they had boats. Small, hand-carved canoes. Captain Clark's journal, August 12th, 1805, reads, We stood astride the mighty and heretofore deemed endless Missouri, but... An imminent range of high mountains lay to our west, their tops covered with snow. Now, I'm not much of a sailor, but I do know this. You are going nowhere fast if you think a canoe or a keelboat is going to help you cross the Rocky Mountains. (laughs) So this is the choice they made, one that they struggled over, one they voted on. And Jeremiah, I don't know if they came to the same kind of consensus you did this morning about your song. But they finally made a choice. We must abandon our boats. Oh, they brought us this far. Without them, we wouldn't be standing here today. But now that we are standing here today, we need something else. There is no going on without going over. And there is no going over with the equipment that we have. They finished the westward expedition on horseback trading what they had to the Shoshone people in exchange for ponies, and it was hard for them to do so. Those boats and canoes had been their home for miles. The boat had been commissioned, approved, the only mode of transportation that President Jefferson wanted them to use because he personally hated horses and deemed them uncivilized. But they had no choice. There were so many applications here that could be made in the telling of this story applicable to the church. Churches have a way of plowing up river with all they know and and all they have known until the water gives out. We've always met at 11 o'clock. You can't change that. We take up the offering before the solo and it's always followed by the doxology. Sister Cleo always sings a solo during the Easter cantata. We have always used the King James Bible and there is no other. On and on I can go. It's usually about operations, traditions, policies, furnishings, expectations. 
What we have been doing has brought us this far, and I don't see any reason to change it now. Do you know these churches? All the while, everything around the church has changed. The entire landscape. And the churches that are the most quickly dying are those stuck in a dry riverbed. Clinging to their canoes and their oars when it's time to trade those for horses so they can't go on. I mean, they could if they would make a proper reading of their surroundings, find the courage to let go of the oars, get in the saddle and light out for that snow-capped mountaintop, but they won't. The boat is too comfortable, the mountain is too daunting, all their muscles have been conditioned for rowing, not riding. All their tools, their skills, their training, their program, it's nautical, not equestrian. And besides, some powerful person a long time ago gave them their orders, showed them how to do it, and he never liked horses anyway. So what if there is no water left? We belong in the boat. You know, it's true. You have to get out of the boat if you're going to walk on water, right? But when there is no water, it's even more important to get out of the boat. It's a challenge. But imagine if it's so hard to change how we do things, how much more so when we are called upon to change what we actually believe. If rearranging the order of the service causes half of the congregation to have a convulsive fit, do we have any chance whatsoever at assessing, reassessing, adjusting, and readjusting our actual beliefs? Do we? Well, Ronnie, why would we do that? We know we are right. <laughs> are we? Well, we believe what the church has always believed. Which church? In what generation? And in what place? If we are not oh so careful, careful, we will be row, row, rowing our boat when we should have traded for horses. Because everything around us has changed. And God is calling us to meet that change head on. And more so, God is calling us. God is always calling us to change ourselves. As Tolstoy said, everyone thinks about changing the world. Few of us think about changing ourselves. Simon Peter, the very rock of the church, gets called before this inquisition because of his new outlandish theological beliefs. This is what the lectionary's text today is all about. You entered the home of these Gentiles and you even ate with them. How dare you? You have some splaining to do now. <laughs> and with that question, the church, the early church, the first church, has to make a decision. Are we going to stick with these boats? Or are we going to trade for horses? And Simon Peter's answer to that question changes the course of Christian, even Western history. And I'll expand on that. As Anna said, last Sunday we left Simon Peter in the coastal village of Joppa. He had just raised a woman named Tabitha from the dead. 
And sticking with this resurrection theme, we return to Joppa, where he has nothing short of a mystical experience, the experience he is reporting on to the Inquisition in Jerusalem. Verses 5 through 7 of our text reads, Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And when I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Wild animals, reptiles, birds. Continuing to verses 8 and 9, here is Simon Peter's response to this vision, to this new commandment. No. You ever told God no? (laughs) No, Lord. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. We are dealing with something here that the Hebrews called kashrut. We call it kosher. The kosher requirements of the Jewish people. That is, God's law established a number of dietary restrictions And next time that you meet someone who says, well, we just obey the whole Bible, remind them of a few of these. Some of the prohibited food items were shellfish. Oh, we're in trouble down here. (laughs) Pork. Well, this is the toughest one of all. Because if you don't love bacon, I mean, come on. Come on. Fish without scales. That's catfish. Reptiles, no gator. Invertebrates, mammals that were not ruminants, animals with any major defect, certain cuts and fat from the animal's midsection. And then there were mixtures that had to be avoided by penalty of law, eating meat and dairy at the same time, eating vegetables that had grown in the shade of a grapevine. No blood could be ingested. There is no medium rare in the kosher diet. No part of the animal containing the sciatic nerve. No fruit from a tree or a vine younger than three years. And no otherwise kosher foods that had been prepared or slaughtered by a non-Jew. Now you go out with a vegetarian or vegan friend and you have to find a restaurant that makes them happy. It is next to impossible. Try this. This, in this old world orthodox practice of kashrut, was something altogether different. Simon Peter was a good Jew. A law-abiding, Bible-believing, scripture-quoting, orthodox-keeping Jew. So much so, that when God commands him to break the kosher laws, and let there be no mistake about it, God is giving that instruction that contradicts Simon Peter's entire understanding of God. Simon Peter's instinctive gut response is, no way. Simon Peter is so adamant that God has to go through this exercise three times. Why? Because when it's so hard to change how we do things, how much more so when we are called upon to change What we actually believe. God is not asking Peter to rearrange the order of the worship service. 
or to trade his hymnal for words projected on a wall. This has nothing to do with form or preference or personal taste. God is asking Peter to stop believing what God once told Peter to believe. Did you hear that? What? God is asking Peter to stop believing what God once asked Peter to believe. To open his arms and his heart to something utterly new. To trade his boat for horses. Pete, that's how I imagine God talking to him. Pete, (laughs) you've come a long way, buddy. You've paddled so well, just like I asked you to. But now the landscape has changed. You're going to have to explore some new territory, and I need you to let go of what you have clutched to as the truth and take hold of what the Spirit is now doing. Wow. And what was the Spirit doing? It had little to do with animals and reptiles and birds tangled up in the sheets of some divine clothesline. It had to do with people. Now, by the work of the Spirit and the power of the resurrection, a new humanity was being created. And those who joined in this new movement wouldn't be just the card-carrying kosherites. It would be Gentiles, Italians, Europeans, Africans, Asians. It would be everybody. If Peter had not changed his heart and mind right here and convinced and implored his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to do the same, we might not even be Christians today. Because this is the event that said to the early church, who really didn't even know they were the early church at the time, to say, God's view and God's heart and God's arms and God's table is much bigger and wider than you've ever dreamed possible. For Christ did not come to love and save a few religious insiders who knew the rules. He came to love and save the world. To redeem everything. And and at the risk of being accused of being a heretic. This means that God wants everything and everyone to belong. We join God in that work. Or at least try to get out of the way of God doing that work. Would you like to practice that right now? Good. Thanks, Lenny. All right, we're all going to close our eyes. Everybody, play along. Get your eyes closed. Say amen. amen. Deep breaths. Oh, that was good. Deep breaths. Now, you may not see a sheet descending from heaven filled with strange animals, but I want you to see something with your eyes closed there. Think, okay? Got it? Ready? Here we go. See a person in your mind. Maybe a group of people in your mind. This is going to be different for everyone, but this person or this group is for you, persona non grata. They are not welcome. Get them in your mind. Who are they? An immigrant? A Catholic? A Muslim? A communist? A lesbian? A Wall Street banker? A black man? 
a particular politician, a Latino, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, a former business partner. Big deep breath, because this is extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) But hold them in your mind for just a second longer. All right, open your eyes. Now listen. Whoever that is in your mind, God loves that person as much as God loves you. God loves that person the way you love and hold a baby child. I don't always like that. I don't have to like it. But I have to learn to begin to accept that. Because God's grace is far larger and bigger than any prejudices that we hold. Whatever they may be. So I'll finish where I began. When President Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out on that expedition to explore the American West, you're going to love this. He asked Captain Lewis how much money it would take to get there. Lewis sat down with a pencil, 30 men, 8,000 round-trip miles, boats, ammunition, gifts for the native tribes, clothing. It came to a whopping $2,500. When he got home almost 900 days later, They had overspent their budget just a little bit. The official receipt total was $38,722.25. The unofficial total was $60,000. And to show you that some things never change, Congress waffled about for months before they would pay the bill. (laughs) Why? Clark could not produce all his receipts. (laughs) Like the native tribes he traded with who had never seen a white man knew what a receipt was. He had overspent without permission, though he was thousands of miles away. He had not found the waterway to Asia, though such a thing did not exist. They did not discover any woolly mammoths like President Jefferson said they would, though they were long extinct. They had destroyed government property, those boats, and bought horses from foreigners without a treaty agreement in place. On and on, until Lewis and Clark were both called separately before Congress to explain themselves. Here they were, in their possession, 174 new plant species, 134 new animal species, the first white men to cross the continental divide, the first white men to see Yellowstone and enter Montana. They produced 140 new maps of the country. They established relationships with a dozen native tribes, and they had done so while losing only one man, one, to a burst appendix. Faced with these achievements, there was no going back, and not even the worst pessimist or rule keeper could deny that the landscape and the world had changed. 
They were living in a brave new world, larger, more open, and more glorious than they ever could have imagined. And that is still the world we live in today. And the Spirit calls us to explore that world and to love every person that we find there.